Our second reading of Scripture comes to us from the end of Matthew's biography of Jesus. We'll be reading from chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Listen for God's word to you. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today is Trinity Sunday. It is a special Sunday in the church put aside for a doctrine that nobody understands. And that's not going to change today. (laughs) But hopefully we can talk about why we celebrate it. Even if we don't understand it, maybe we can at least get some purchase on the question of why do we devote a day to this mysterious doctrine, the doctrine that God is three in one, that God is is um, uh, one God, but God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that each of those persons is God. This is the classic formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three persons, and each person is God. And the problem with that is pretty obvious. Is it one or is it three, right? We we come to this question and we say, well, well, are you pagans? Do you believe in a multiplicity of gods? Because you talk that way sometimes. Or are you monotheists? Do you believe in a single God? Because Jesus um, talked that way a lot. Uh, Jesus was a Jew and he grew up in a monotheistic culture. Jesus talked about God the Father. And yet at the same time, Jesus allowed his disciples, when he had risen from the grave, we read that Jesus um, was there and they worshipped him. And as a Jew, he would have known that the only one you can worship is God. Jesus was accused on many occasions by his critics of blaspheming because he made himself equal with God. So we see uh, throughout the New Testament this idea that that Jesus, the, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit of God are God. And yet at the same time, we see also throughout uh, not only the New Testament, but through the Hebrew Scriptures as well, the idea that God is one, that there is only one God. So which is it? One or three? Well, it is a mystery. And not all mysteries are meant to be solved. Um, that hasn't stopped people from trying. Uh, for centuries, particularly the first few centuries of the Christian movement, people tried very hard to solve this mystery of the God who is three, but the God who is one. How can God be both three and one? So during the first few centuries of the uh, Christian movement, uh, uh, various people proposed all kinds of theories that would explain how it could be that God is both three and one. And they came to have names like these, modalism, Arianism, uh, subordinationism and adoptionism. There's lots of isms out there. And the reason they're called isms instead of Christianity is because the church wrestled with several of them and um, uh, many of them and uh, ultimately discarded them. And they said that is a deficient understanding of what uh, what Scripture teaches us about the God who is three and one. 
And so these came to be regarded as heresies. And depending on whether the person uh, uh, disputed that, sometimes they were considered heretics. But um, but as we look at the early church, the further back we go, we see the more people struggled with what is uh, what is the Trinity? How can we understand what the Trinity is? How can three be one? And and so people have wrestled with it. And what what um, theologians ultimately came up with is they they came up with a way of, of of dealing with it where no one would call them a heretic later. And that was by saying, okay, well look, I know I know what the Trinity is, sort of, because I know it's not adoptionism, and I know it's not subordinationism, and I know it's not modalism, and I know it's not um, Arianism. And so they built a kind of a box um, whose walls are the things that the Trinity is not. So they kind of created this space in the middle, and they said, somewhere in there is the Trinity, but don't ask me to define it. I can tell you a, a long list of things the Trinity is not, but I can't tell you, I'm not even sure I would recognize it if I saw it. Uh, theologians essentially constructed a kind of a Schrodinger's box with, with the Trinity inside of it. Um, and that raises the question, why do we care? I mean, you know, Schrodinger's box famously is the one with the cat who only dies or doesn't die when you open the box. So why would you open the box? Why not just leave some things alone. Why, why do you have to tinker? Why do you have to get inside this and try to pick it apart? Why would you worry about it? I mean, this is who God is. I'm happy with what God has done. Why do I care about the internal workings of God? Why celebrate Trinity Sunday? Why don't we just let sleeping doctrines lie? <laughs> well, there's a reason there's a reason, and I'm going to come at it from this direction. Pardon me. When um, Margo and I were dating, or maybe we had already become engaged by this time, one of our coworkers, we were trying to plan some kind of an outing together, um, and this coworker called us. She, her, her tongue slipped, and she said, "She said, and you know, Mark and Lugo will come." And uh, it, it kind of caught on for for the next couple of years until we actually moved from New Jersey. Our friends called us. Mark and Lugo. That there was there was Luke, and there was Margo, and there was also the couple Mark and Lugo. And maybe you can think of situations like that where where two different people you knew got married or they became a couple, and they became a couple. And the the question that I would raise for you is: Did they become something new? Is there something underlying that couple? You know, if you think about people you know, is the couple a thing? Or are they just two individuals who happen to be in a relationship? And they're, they're connected by, by, you know, affection and maybe uh, uh, vows in a church, maybe uh, paperwork filed with the state. But is there really a thing there that is the couple? Or is it just a convenient label for this kind of fiction that we pretend that these two individuals are a couple. Well, Christianity and Judaism, and I'm sure many other religions, say no, there actually is a thing there, that there is a, a new thing that is created when you have a couple. Oh, I'm behind my slides. Jesus uh, famously uh, got into a dispute one day, and he told people about marriage. They were saying, can you get divorced? And he said, a man uh, leaves his father and mother and is joined to the wife, and the two are united into one. They become one flesh. 
And then he went on to say, since they're not no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And the reason we have debates over divorce, you know, the, this is actually, if you know people who are Catholic, this is a burning debate right now. Pope Francis seems to be more open to the idea of, of divorce than his predecessors. Um, it's a question that the, the Protestant churches have, have all dealt with one way or another. Um, but we look at the second part of that sentence because we just assume that the first part was some kind of happy religious talk by Jesus that Jesus really didn't know what he was talking about. When he said that the two become one flesh, he didn't mean it, not in any serious way. He was just talking about kind of a convenient label. And so we say, okay, yeah, we know that that's not really meaningful because you can't be both a couple and individuals. That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. And so we then proceed on to the separate question of, okay, what do you do when they are no longer in love or when circumstances change and they want to get a divorce? We move on to the second part of the question without, I think, adequately discussing or really reflecting on the first part of the question. Is there such a thing as a couple? And if there is, if, as Jesus seemed to think, there is, what happens to the individuals? I mean, you've probably heard situations where, you know, newlyweds are talking about the way, you know, I kind of had to give up my friends or I don't feel like, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm trying to figure out how to how to make this all work. And and, you know, I feel like I'm kind of giving up part of who I am. Is that true? Is that necessary? If the couple is a real thing, what happens to the individuals? Do the individuals disappear? Do we lose our individuality in our couplehood? And of course, it's not just a question for people who are married or thinking about getting married. Uh, we see this sort of uh, discussion all through the, the scriptures. We see uh, people talking about membership in the church in the same kind of way. Peter talks about the church this way. He says that we are, we are living stones, that we're like, we're like bricks that are being used to put together a building. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. That the church, the members of the church, are cemented into place in a building which is this spiritual temple that God comes and dwells in. It's a strong image, you know. You don't just like leave the side of a wall if you're a brick. I mean, hopefully the builder knew what he was doing and you're really stuck in there. But do we see churches that way? Do we see churches as just kind of a loose assembly of of people who kind of like coming to the same place at the same time and singing some songs and hearing a little bit about the Bible? Or do we see ourselves truly as being constructed into a building and no more able to, to come and go at our whim than a brick can come and go from a building? Peter said, that's the truth. Paul, we heard this, uh, this metaphor that Paul uses uh, just last week in, in Pentecost. We heard Paul talk about how the church is the body of Christ, that we are individually, you know, the elbow and the, the wrist and the, the knuckles, the, the toes, the fingers, the, the eyeballs of the body of Christ, that we are together, we are united into this thing, which is the body of Christ. Is that just happy talk? Are we really just kind of a club? Or was Paul saying that there is a reality here? That we collectively, you, me, the church down the street, the church we prayed for in Arizona, are we collectively a body? See, all of these questions are related. They are all related to the idea 
of diversity in unity. Can you take two things, unite them in a new way, create a new thing from them, and still have individuality? If we are joined to the church, or if two people, when they marry, are joined to one another, are they just dissolved into the other, into that new thing, the couple, like a car being absorbed by lava in Hawaii? Is that what happens when you get married? You just The marriage kind of absorbs you? When you join the church, does the church just kind of burn you up and... I don't know how far we can go with that. For those of us who are more of a science fiction bend, when we join the church, when we get married, is, is the, the, do the vows really amount to prepare to be assimilated? Are we just going to submerge our individuality into this collective and lose who we are? Christianity says no. Christianity says that when we die to ourselves is when we actually come alive. That God made us unique individuals. God loves our uniqueness. God loves our individuality. But it can never be fully expressed as long as we're isolated from one another. That it is when we join ourselves in a couple that we become true men and true women. It is when we join the church that we come truly alive and become who God made us to be. Truly unique individuals. In the book, The Screwtape Letters, um, which I, I cannot recommend enough. It's it's a little hard reading. It's it's very British, very posh, and it's a little um, I don't know. It's seventy, eighty years old by now. Um, but it's a great book. C.S. Lewis has a really good understanding of what it means to be tempting. Where what makes what makes it difficult to be a Christian? And he imagines this correspondence between two demons. There's the junior tempter who's still learning learning kind of the the way the 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 game works, and then he's being advised by a senior tempter. Who, who is telling him, you know, be sure and do this and don't let him do that and things like that. But in the course of one of the letters, he says this. He's talking about what God's plan is. And he says, God's plan, God's ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it too. The creatures are to be one with him, yet themselves. This is the promise that God makes for people who are getting married. It is the promise that God makes for people who are baptized into the church, that we become more truly ourselves by submerging ourselves into the whole. And that's why the Trinity is important, because it reveals that this is not a one-off thing. This is not a promise that God made. This is something that God knows because it is how God himself is characterized. That he is three distinct persons, and yet he is one unitary whole. Now, if you are a church-going person, if you're really honestly, if you're just raised in a Christian culture, I think you've absorbed a lot of this idea that there are three, that, that, that God is three. We pick that up just from the culture. We see crosses on the top of buildings. We hear about shamrocks at, uh, you know, St. Patrick's Day. Um, we hear about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I think we get the idea of diversity better than they would have in the first few centuries of the Christian movement. But the unity may may be something we still work on. The unity of God, that, that Jesus truly is God and the Holy Spirit truly is God, that there is one God. So what I want to do is look at that from the lens of the Hebrew Scriptures, specifically through the book of Isaiah.
so Isaiah tells us about this vision. He says he saw the Lord. <clears throat> he saw the Lord um, uh, in the year that Uzziah died. So this is about 740 BC. Um, some some sometime around then they they give us a couple of year window. But um, Uzziah died. There was this national crisis, and probably a lot of people were going into churches to pray. And um, and uh, Isaiah was in the temple, we think, and he saw this vision of the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. You know, what's interesting to me, I wonder, well, what did he actually see? What did Isaiah see? He doesn't tell us. The closest he comes to describing God is he tells us about the, the hem of his robe. And he says that was too big to fit in the temple. So um, I don't know what he saw. It's, it's interesting. He says, he says, you know what, let me describe the part that I can get my head wrapped around. Okay? And then he tells us this fantastic vision of these seraphim that are nowhere else described in Scripture. We have no idea what a seraph is except what Isaiah is able to articulate. And that's the easy part of his vision. That's the part he can he can actually communicate to us. So he says, Attending him were six mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their... Um, uh, well, I'll look up there. Uh, <laughs> with two wings they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. So he has this vision of these these creatures, we don't know really what they look at, look like, um, because that's not enough. We know that they can fly. We know they've got six wings. And that, at that point, we go, well, I'm not sure how that would work. How do you have six wings? Um, and so, and they've got feet. So it's like, I'm not sure what to make of this vision. Uh, the word seraph means fiery. We don't know anything else about seraphs except that they are fiery. Um, if you think of like, you know, Valentine's Day cards, those are cherubs, and besides, that's not what a cherub looks like either. They're, they're, that's a cupid that somehow got imported into Christian art somewhere along the way. These are seraphs. These are something different. They are fiery, right? There is like, stand back, you don't want to get too close, kind of like that lava flow that we saw earlier. So these fiery beings, whatever they are, are calling out to one another. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, that's kind of church words for us, but holy means different. It means transcendent. It means above and beyond. Nothing at all like what we're used to. It's, it's the thing that is out there. Wherever we are, it's further. It's, it's beyond us. Holy means transcendent. And in, in part, it means pure, right? So, so uh, morally pure. Uh, I think that's the way most of us think of holy, but it means more than that. It means beyond us in every way, in every possible way, God is Holy, God is beyond there. And yet, at the same time, in this vision, what is it that the seraphs are saying? They're saying, God has his cake and eats it too. He is holy. He is utterly beyond anything we can imagine. But the whole earth is filled with his pervasive presence. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This glory means that, that presence, that, that availability. And he says, their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. And he is conscious of his unworthiness to be part of this event. So he says, that's it. I'm doomed. It's all over. I'm doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. So one of the seraphim flies to him with a burning coal that he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touches my lips and uh, says, the, the coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and you are forgiven. 
sins are forgiven. And then he hears God asking, who should I send as a messenger to the people who will go for us? And he says, here I am, send me. There's no hint in this passage that God is a trinity. There, there is nothing that if you were coming to the project cold and all you had was those eight verses of Isaiah's prophecy, you would come up with the doctrine of the trinity. Because in the Hebrew scriptures, God is seen most clearly in his unity. And it is in the New Testament that God is revealed in Christ and the witness to Christ throughout the pages of the New Testament. Nobody is going to arrive at the Trinity by looking at this section of Isaiah. But there are hints that we can see with the eyes of faith. Now, sometimes people um, people imagine um, these um, first two um, that I think are weak. Um, uh, people say, well, holy, holy, holy. See, three holies, three, three members of the Trinity. Um, anytime you hear three, three holies, you should think, Think three members of the Trinity. Well, maybe. Um, and then God uses this uh, this plural. He says, "He says, who will go for us?" And so sometimes people say, "Well, see, he's talking about his internal dialogue, the himself, the the Holy Spirit, uh, the Son, and the Father communicating one another." Um, those, those are certainly um, uh, possibilities. Um, the Protestant reformer five hundred years ago, John Calvin, he said, "If I had to contend with heretics, I would rather choose to employ stronger proofs." He says those are not super compelling proofs. But what I find compelling, again, coming through it, from, from looking at it from the lens of Christianity, I would say there's a great picture here of atonement for sin. Did you notice the seraph, this fiery being, this, this creature who is you know, somehow dazzling and, and burning in its intensity, this intense creature, the seraph, goes to the altar to get the sacrifice, the, the fire of the sacrifice that is on the altar. He wants to get a stone out of it. And he uses tongs? Right? He's some blazing creature, but the fire, the stone in the fire is so hot, so intense, that he uses tongs to access it. And so, through the eyes of faith, I say to myself, well, Christ is the rock. And this is something far beyond any angel. And when it touches us, our guilt is taken away and our sins are forgiven. So through the eyes of faith, I see Christ in this picture. But not in a way that would convince somebody who's not a believer. I just say, wow, I see Christ there. And the fact that, that God is able to be both beyond and present, both both far and near. God has his cake and eats it too. I see as a sign of God's Holy Spirit, making him everywhere available, even as he is far beyond anything we can imagine. So through the eyes of faith, I see the Spirit in this picture too. There's a kind of a, a Christian truism that Jesus has found on every page of the Bible. And I believe that. But I believe it because I look at the Bible through the eyes of faith. It is the Holy Spirit working in me, who enables me to see Jesus on every page of the Bible. So is the Trinity in this in this passage? Um, you either see it or you don't. I wouldn't try to say 
you must be persuaded by this passage. Because I think what Isaiah saw was a unity, God's unity. He saw the oneness of God. And it is through the New Testament that we see the diversity of God. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each as God to be worshipped, but separate. The doctrine of the Trinity, like so many other doctrines, the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of marriage, is the idea that God delights in our individuality, that God made you who you are, and he delights in your uniqueness. And he has no intention of just consuming it like a car in a lava flow. He doesn't want you to be assimilated. He wants you to continue to be yourself, but the way to be yourself to the fullest is to surrender to him, to trust yourself to him and his purposes for your life. Marriage, joining the church. And it is through that that you most truly become yourself. And the reason we celebrate the Trinity is not because we will ever understand it, but because it reminds us this is what God does. This is who God is. God is the God who eats his cake and has it too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the doctrine of the Trinity. We do not understand it. Um, the the smart, smarter and holier theologians than we have have studied it, and so many of them have stumbled into heresy, Lord. So we pray that you would help us to, um, to uh, understand you more fully, to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly. But Lord, help us to trust that when we surrender ourselves to you, we do not become lost in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a confused mix of, of everything, but we come more truly ourselves, that we come truly to life when we give ourselves to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.